This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good morning. It's good to be with you today, amen? Good to be in the house of the Lord and to get to sing with one another and to get to visit and to fellowship and to share and eventually coming around and partaking of the body and blood of our Lord together in unity and in fellowship. Really thankful for the opportunity to be here and to get to share the day with you. We've been looking forward to coming for, for several weeks and uh, maybe several months, in fact, getting on the, ca- the calendar with Clint um, and getting to share the day with you. Really thankful for all that y'all mean to us and all that we have going on in this place and the ways you guys support us, supporting us with encouragement and care and time and energy and effort and financially supporting us. We wouldn't be in the position we're at and blessed without the work that y'all have put in and glory to Christ for that, for the work that y'all share in that and the fruit that abounds to your account. For those, who don't, those of you who don't know me, who haven't met before, my name is Jordan, and I attend at the Wheeler Avenue Church Christ in Fort Smith, and I work as an evangelist. And if you don't know what an evangelist is, an evangelist is one who preaches the gospel and works to build churches. So the work that I'm about is the work of building churches, which means we train families, train men to teach their homes, to teach their children. And out of those teachers that come, husbands and fathers, we see men that can teach the church, that can share the word of God together. And from those teachers, we raise up elders and shepherds that can lead, and deacons, and then more young men and their wives that can go forward and start a new church and take the message of the gospel forward. That's what I'm about and that's what I do. And so we put a lot of effort and a lot of emphasis into those sorts of things. And now if you're listening to the sort of things I'm describing, the sort of things I do, you may notice there's one section of our population that gets a lot of emphasis and a lot of airtime in that work. And that's our brothers. Because as we'll see here in a moment, God has chosen and ordered that those who would teach the congregation publicly, that those who would, who would lead the home and would lead congregations would be men. And so if you're a sister here sitting this morning, you may be wondering, well, what about me? Where do I fit in? What's my place? Am I important in this work? You ratted off all these things you're about, but you didn't mention anything about me at all. And let's be clear, that attitude doesn't come out of a looking to push the boundaries. It doesn't come out of defiance or rebellion. It comes out of the fact that you have been made co-participants with Christ, and you want to be a part of the work of the kingdom that we sung about this morning. And that is a good and an honest desire. And so what we want to look at this morning is to look at the value of our sisters, the value of them in the work of the kingdom and the critical role that they have in seeing the gospel go forward. That we all, as members of the body of Christ, men and women, share together in the mission of taking the message of Jesus Christ to a world that's lost and dying. Before we get into that, I want to say something that's got to be in the air a little bit, um, and we got to acknowledge. It's that the ways that we think that men should behave and women should behave and the ways they interact are shaped by our culture and our setting and our past experiences. The ways we expect men to behave or women to behave and interact is governed by how our parents interacted or, God forbid, how they didn't interact and work together. It's shaped by church environments that we've been a part of, positive and negative. It's shaped by culture and history. And what I want to encourage you to do for the next however long, I'm not putting a timestamp on it, no promises, but for the next little bit is I want to just say, let's just forget about that for a second. And just ask, what does God say? What does God say 
about how men and women are supposed to be ordered in his church and in the kingdom of God. Because here's the thing, culture is changing all the time. There's times in world history when the Bible's view of how our sisters should behave has been way too progressive. And there's times when the Bible's view is way too conservative because culture is always changing and adapting and floating around. So let's just move the culture off the table and say, what is the will of God? And let's find blessing and life and courage in that. My goal this morning, if you're a Christian sister, is to allow you to know what has God asked of you so that you can joyfully and confidently and boldly participate in the work of God. And that us as brothers would be blessings to them and not stumbling blocks as we do that. So as we begin our study, I want to look at three, or I guess four specific things. We want to begin by looking at some of the prohibitions that are given, because we don't want to be unclear. The roles of men and women in Scripture are not the same. There are different roles that God has given to us. We want to be honest about that. Then we want to look at the Old Testament's vision for women, the New Testament's vision for such, and then finally, moving forward, what would that look like for us today? What would it look like for us today to adopt the Bible's view of how men and women should interact for the glory of God? So let's start talking about the prohibitions. And we want to do this because we want to speak clearly. If for no other reason, I don't want you to think for the next little bit that I'm trying to sweep something under the rug or I'm trying to undermine anything. We want to be clear about what God has said. Three specific areas in the assembly, in church leadership, and in the home. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 to 35, starting in verse 33, it says, In all the churches of the saints, so not just in this place in Corinth, not just culturally, but in all the churches of the saints, verse 33 says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let their ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Here, specifically talking about the public teaching, it says that men are the ones who are supposed to be doing that. Our sisters, God commands, are not to be a part of that. Now, you may ask this question about what's the, what's the, the, the asking questions? Well, in this day and age, the way information was transmitted in sort of a speech or a lecture, it'd be a little bit more um, two-directional, a little bit more of a dialogue. That's the context they're writing in. And so it would be common for people to ask questions. You know, later within the course of this study, I might ask a rhetorical question, which is a question to hang out there and not really get answered. Then they might ask questions of the audience. And what God says is that our sisters are not to be included in that. Similarly, 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 and 12, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. For I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now I want to note two things. The first thing is, let a woman learn. This is a commandment for women to have Christian education. The Bible's view of women is not that they're off in the corner while the men are learning. Everyone learns in the kingdom of God, but it gives a prohibition in the assembly about how that's to occur. It's supposed to be with submission, with quietness, and then it gives a more general principle of not to have authority over a man. So this would include things that those who are leading publicly are supposed to be men. That is the will of God. So things like teaching, prayers, making announcements, stuff like that. God has ordered that the men would be the ones who are part of that. All right, the next thing. In leadership, 1 Timothy 3 talks about if someone, if a man desires the position of a bishop, we might say that's an elder or a pastor. That's a man that does that. The bishop then says must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Similarly, if you go down to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, talking about deacons, they're the husband of one wife as well. In Acts chapter 6, you see sort of an office or a situation that most people agree is the predecessor or the actual office of deacon. 
And the men, as they're looking, say, pick out seven, the apostles, rather, they say, pick out seven men of good reputation. The apostles could have said, pick out seven people. They didn't do that. They could have said, pick out seven women. They could have done that. But instead, they say, that office is for men. So in terms of formal leadership, formally ordained offices, the will of God is that men would be the ones who are taking the charge in that. And then finally, in the home, we read here Ephesians 5, wives submit. Colossians 3, wives submit. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, wives submit. This all have this, this sort of idea here of that the women are supposed to defer, that wives specifically, rather, are supposed to defer to their husbands. Now, here's the thing. We do not have time to, to discuss all possible relational dynamics that could occur within a home. But this is the general pattern that we see that we should strive to account ourselves to. Wives are supposed to submit, and men are supposed to lovingly sacrifice and lead lovingly sacrifice and lead. And so as we think about this, my grandmother gave me a great analogy. Not analogy, but kind of rule to follow. She was about the mildest and kindest person you'll ever meet in your life. And she was talking about this topic, and she say, when my grandfather and I have a decision to make, or her, her husband, my grandfather, when they had a decision to make, she would tell him what she thought, why she thought he was wrong, why, um, why this was going to be bad for her and for the family and for him and for the church and all these sorts of things. And then she says, then I remember that he answers to God and not to me, and I follow what he says. That's the pattern there. Being in submission to your husband doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you can't have an opinion or a thought. It means that when it comes time for the ultimate decision, that's something that God leaves to the men to do. And so this is the pattern that we see in these three areas of assemblies in the church, uh, in the church leadership, and in the home is that God ordains that men would be the ones to do this. Now, for some of you, this may be a very new thing to think about how God orders these various structures and these various relationships. For some of you, this may be kind of old. And for some of you, this may be a difficult thing to handle. For some of us, the idea of submitting or being under or answering to other people is a real sore spot. And I want to say, I understand. <laughs> Okay? I understand that it's not always easy. There's times I have to submit, and I don't like it either. But I want to look for a few minutes at, before we, we get into the rest of our study at some considerations, because I want us to be able to joyfully hold what the Word of God says. It's not good for us to look at the Word of God, His will for us, His Word which is life, and say, I hate that. We need to be able to embrace and joyfully engage with what God has said and with what God has commanded. So there's three considerations I want to help you, if you're a Christian sister struggling with this topic, to think about. The first thing is that submission is a human reality. Every person submits to somebody. Every person, man, woman, child, has somebody over them that they have to answer to. There is no person in the universe in the, sorry, no person, I guess, in the world, you may say, that doesn't answer to somebody. I'm an evangelist. I work with Wheeler Avenue Church of Christ, but I work under those elders. I submit to them. I have to listen to them. There's no such thing as anybody who gets to walk around strutting about saying, nobody gets to tell me what to do, all right? Everybody has to listen to people. Everyone submits to someone. And so the fact that God is ordered in, in this way is not as though our sisters are now the submissive people and the guys are the ones who get to make the rules. That's not it. 
A man with an attitude who's walking around saying nobody's going to tell me what to do is an ungodly man. We need to have a disposition of care and love and a willingness to defer. The second thing I want to say is biblical authority and headship is always for service. The reason God gives someone in charge, he makes someone the head, he makes someone the, the authority over something is so they can serve all the time. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The reason why God allows elders in the church is because elders are the chief servants in the church. They are the ones who the first line say, if anybody's going to suffer, it's going to be me. And men who walk around thinking that wifely submit, they, they read passages like Ephesians 5 of wives submit yourselves to your husbands and husbands make sure they know you're in charge. That is not biblical authority. That is an ungodly way to behave. And so many times, the reasons why there's the bucking and the frustration against biblical authority is because of abuse. It's because it's been misused. And here's the thing. If you show me a sister that we're, we're pointing at and we're saying, well, that sister's out, out of line, almost every time I can show you a man who has either abdicated or abused. A man is abdicated or abused almost every single time. And so, brothers, if we look at our sisters and thinking, well, they're not as submissive as we might like to be, the question is, how can we sacrifice more to help them in that? And then finally, God gives us roles for a blessing. I mean, if everybody's in charge, things don't tend to go well. Judges chapter 5, verse number 1 says, when leaders lead in Israel and the people offer themselves willingly, bless the Lord. When we have people that love God and love the people around them and say, I'm willing to sacrifice and to lead, and the people say, sign me up for the mission of God, that is a great and beautiful and glorious thing and speaks to the unity of the body that Cameron talked about this morning. And so hopefully these things show us that this is a lot more normal. And the fact that we have a role and a place under a human, we'll see, doesn't make us less than them. Rather, it is the way that God has ordered it for his blessing. All right, so let's look at the Old Testament for a little bit, and then we're going to look at the New Testament. And these are going to be f very fast, very fast. What does the Bible have to say about women? What does it have to say about the way they're to be treated, about the roles they can have in the service of the Lord? One of the first questions you should ask whenever you're studying the Bible is what is the first thing the Bible says about it? That's a really important question to ask that can give you a lot of understanding. And the first case where women come up in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. So as God makes the world, he makes it good and in seven days. And if you read Genesis chapter 1, there's like this climax where it's heading up, it's heading up to the creation of humanity. The birds are cool, the animals are cool, the plants are cool, the earth is cool, but like humans are the crowning jewel of God's creation. That's where God wants to see this, and he, he, he gives us this, this poem about the creation of man. Let's notice. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. It says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as we think about the very beginning here, God says that humanity is different. 
that is special and wonderful as the animals that we may see and incredible to see the handiwork of God within them, humans are different. They are called the image of God. And notice this image of God is tied to their subduing and ordering creation. That you may have a bunch of, 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 um, a bunch of land that's untapped and its potential is unknown, but you need humans to do that. So you may notice here, in these three phrases that we have highlighted. So God created them in his own image. In the image of God created them. Male and female, he created them. So it's usually universally recognized that these are lines of poetry. And one of the things about poetry in Hebrew is that its job is to compare and to really say the same thing from three different angles. So God created man in his own image. That's humanity there. In the image of God created him. Male and female, he created them. In this important facet we have, We have the dual emphasis that God created humans in his image, but alongside, along with the fact that humans are in the image of God, is that male and female are created together. That part of the way God gives his image to people and that we bear the image of God is through men and women. Men and women both have divine significance. There are no lesser human beings. One's genetic makeup, whether it be in the particular chromosomes that define male and human, or in any genetic makeup, does not make you more or less in the image of God. Every person is. And as we think about this, one of the things we hinted at a little bit earlier, I got ahead of myself, this being the image of God isn't just true about us. It's not just a statement where God says, okay, you're in the image, it's like this nice badge you get to wear. It comes with a charge. That charge is to go be fruitful and multiply, have children, fill the earth, and subdue it. This is a project that humans as male and female take part in together. The normal state of humans is meaningful, productive labor that brings order to creation. If you have, you know, a, a wonderful, like, plot of land that's growing things in a meadow, that's really cool, but it takes a human to be able to organize that and to do agriculture and to increase the yield. Humans, men and women, are a part of that. There may be other factors that can, that, you know, um, that, the, that come into how we spend our time that determine that, but it's expected that we would all be a part of blessing the world for the glory of God. That's what the Bible starts with, is that our sisters are filled with divine significance and charged with exercising dominion over the world for the glory of God. All right, so the next thing, we'll zoom ahead. There's a lot of material we're not going to cover, fortunately. Um, Otherwise, we might need to get supper in um, to to do this. But um, Judges chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. says, Deborah was a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. She was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm tree uh, of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So skip ahead a good ways. This is talking about a woman named Deborah and her role in leading and judging Israel. She would set and give, you know, instructions about those judgments. Much like today, we have people that have a dispute about the law. Well, I should get this, I should get that, and they're kind of at war with each other, and we take it to a judge, and that judge decides the right application of law. Deborah was one who was charged with doing it that. Now, this may come a shock to you if you know any Old Testament history, but at this point in Old Testament history, Israel had sinned against God. and had left him behind and had turned to idols. I know that's a big shock, but they had done that. And so in verse number six, she does something about this by the will of God. It says, Then she called for Barak, the son of Ibnoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, 
Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you, go and deploy troops to Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun? So the word of the Lord comes to her. This is what God says. God spoke through Deborah. The word of the Lord, this teaching, came through her mouth. And Barak responds, well, I'll go if you go with me. And so in verse number 14, it says, Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So Deborah gives this command. She gives this instruction. She gives this charge, and Barak springs and goes to obedience, and upon that, Israel is victorious. And a verse we mentioned earlier, Deborah and Barak sang, uh, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, when leaders lead in Israel, when the people offer themselves willingly, bless the Lord. And Deborah was a part of that leadership of the people of Israel. She was a part as a military commander, we might say. And as you go through the rest of the song, Judges chapter 5, Deborah gets a lot of credit for what happened, and so does another woman named Jael as well. In this case, we see Deborah steps into a position of leadership, of authority. We see God giving her the instruction to give Barak commands. In the right leadership structures, it's not wrong for a woman to give a man a directive. That is biblical. It's not wrong for a woman to be a boss in an employment environment. If a lady is a boss there and has rule over men, that's not unbiblical. That's fine. That's an acceptable thing that we see exampled here. Similarly, a lady named Huldah. So 2 Kings 22. Let me give you a little more context before we talk about Huldah. King Josiah was doing major reforms because, once again, shocker, Israel had sinned against God. And in the course of these reforms, they were cleaning up the temple. They were having a, a, a church cleanup day. And they found the misplaced book of the law. So they lost the book of the law, and they find it. And the priests and scribes don't really know what to do with it. And so Hilkiah the priest, Achahim, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asahiah went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. So here, they go and they're sent to this lady, Huldah, to figure out, what do we do about this? We lost the book of the law. We lost the word of God. And there's, there's judgments in here that are coming against us because we broke some of the rules in this book. So she comes to us and then says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. And she goes on to give that prophecy. And basically the prophecy is that because you heard this word and you were convicted about it, judgment's not going to come in your lifetime, but it's going to come later in life. We won't read that whole prophecy. But in this case, Holda gave them not just physical battle instructions. It wasn't just directives about how to accomplish a secular or physical instruction. It was spiritual instructions on what they should do in their service to God. There was spiritual teaching that went on. And so if our sisters offer us a precept from the Lord, a bit of God's word and instruction, we should, we should be willing to receive that, all of us, and not just dismiss it because, well, they're a woman. Similarly, one of the most important portraits of women is given to us in Proverbs chapter 31. It's the so-called virtuous woman. And there are aspects that we value with her that are right, where she was a wife and a mother, things that are cherished and exceptional. And I don't want to diminish those things, but I want to point to the other things that were part of her bearing the image of God and taking dominion over the world. It says she seeks wool and flax, and she works willingly with her hands. She's like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She considers a field and buys it. From her profit, she plants a vineyard. 
She stretches out her hand to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. So all these sorts of things. She's working willingly with her hands. She brings her fruit from afar. She examines the fields and buys it and sees to its growth with the profit from that sale. She works with the technology of the day. She sells the clothing that she makes in order to provide for her family. We might say in this case, what do we see in the virtuous woman? We see a hardworking, providing, real estate investing, farming, tech-savvy seamstress. <laughs> That's an awesome lady. That is an awesome lady. This lady was doing all sorts of things that we might classify as, quote-unquote, outside the home. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Now, let's be clear here. We want to note she did these things not to the neglect of her household, but to the blessing of her household. Her point here in doing these things wasn't just about self-actualization. It was about the blessing of her family. And it was about the blessing of the world at large. And so in these cases where that work can happen and you can do both, God bless you in that. There are many of you who have occupations that you bless the world with and provide necessary services. That's awesome. And as long as you are prioritizing your family and seeing their needs met, praise God. Praise God. Continue to be like this dear sister of old. So the Old Testament has clear examples that women stood out and did various things for the good of God's people. And in many ways, the Old Testament is well ahead of its time in these stories where women in other legal codes were treated as subhuman, as subpar, as having much closer to the rights of animals than of men. Fundamentally, the Old Testament asserts the following things. Women and men are equal in substance before God. And though their roles may be distinct, God uses women as leaders, as teachers. And many of them were great blessings as they were industrious for the good of their families. That's what the Old Testament has to say. And so next we turn to the New Testament. And what you'll find is the New Testament has a remarkably similar vision of the way that sisters bless the world and bless their families and bless their church communities. And we'll notice this one first, first of all before we get into the various roles they might fit. Galatians 3, verse 26 or 27, 28 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you've been baptized, God looks at you and sees Christ Jesus. There is no hierarchy, there is no ranking, there is no superiority in the body of Christ. There is no extra special Christians who get extra special points and gold stars and all that junk. There is no first class, second class distinction. There are roles where God orders us for service, but that does not mean that just because I'm in charge or I have uh, a Y chromosome that I'm a better Christian. That is an ungodly attitude to have. If we are identified with Christ in baptism, God looks at us and sees Jesus. The reason that our sisters are restricted in these public roles is according to the ordering that God gives. It's not because they're less than. The reason that our Sisters are restricted from public leadership roles or public teaching is not because they're not as smart as men, because that's not true. I mean, sorry guys, if it's uh, Bible trivia for the salvation of my soul, Aubrey's my first pick, okay? No offense to you guys, I'm sure y'all are smart. I'm picking her, because she's very intelligent and she's very smart, 
The reason that men are in charge is not because men are wiser, because we're not. It's because God has set an order in place for our blessing, and we should seek to do that. And so what I want to look at is I want to look at three critical roles that kind of ground normal things that sisters did within the body of Christ to serve the church. And we've got first mothers, and then we're going to call it background work, and then foreground work. This first role, I want to make sure we don't overlook, is that of mother, because it was instrumental in taking the early church forward. I want to note a couple examples here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul talks about how he's cheered and heartened when he recalls the genuine faith that is in you. That's in Timothy. And where was that faith first? It dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I'm persuaded is in you also. That Timothy, this planter of churches, this guy who was one of the lead guys in a second generation of Christians, Paul says, you didn't get this on your own. You got it from your mother and you got it from your grandmother. If you read Acts 16, it seems like Timothy's father was out of the picture. But these two sisters in the Lord trained a young man who would be critical for the future of the church. They didn't just raise a Christian son. They raised someone who was instrumental in seeing the baton passed from the apostles to that next generation. And the reason I want to talk about this is because as a mother, you may have the chance to equip a child that can go further than you ever expected. A son or a daughter who, because you gave them the great inheritance of the word of God, did things that were outside of your talent and your abilities or even your station. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 says, The older women likewise, they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. They admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The phrase I want to focus on here, the list and the things that describe the older women's behavior as mothers to these younger mothers is a teacher of good things. Sisters, we need you to be teachers of good things. We need sisters who know the word of God that have good success in their families and understanding how to do this in a quality way so they, those younger mothers don't make the same mistakes that you made. We need sisters who know the word of God backwards and forwards and upside down and inside out. Even if you're not teaching publicly, God is calling you as you age to be a teacher of good things, not a spouter of your opinion, not a spouter of pop wisdom, but a teacher of good things. Not what you heard on Instagram or on a blog post, but what does God say? And brothers, as you raise your children, train daughters who can be teachers of good things. Not just sons that will get up and preach a sermon. Do that too. But don't neglect the spiritual education and knowing the word of God to your daughters just because they won't get up and preach a sermon. Teach them the word of God. And I want to point out one other reference in terms of mothers here. That kind of leads into the next category. Romans 16, verse number 13. Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, and his mother and mine. In this, Paul was saying, not that you greet Rufus's mom and my mom. Rather, he's saying, greet Rufus's mother, who's also a mother to me. 
and we are so blessed to have Christian mothers that we may count mothers to ourselves as well, though they might not be our biological mothers. August 24th, 2022, we just moved here about two weeks earlier. We were staying with Dane and Megan. And uh, talking about Megan as a Christian mother is kind of weird because she's <laughs> younger than my older brother. So she's more like an older sister. But in this way, she was a mother to me. We got a call that my wife's grandmother, who had been a mother to many, was about to die. And as we were staying with them, we were running around and hustling and uh, getting all the things together. And I came down the stairs, and there was a birthday cake. <laughs> because it was my birthday, and she made it for me, a guest in her house. And then she said something that I'll never forget. As I was tearing out, focusing on keeping things together and trying to, to just get to Oklahoma, she said, do you need anything to eat? And the answer was yes, and I had no idea. I didn't have any idea that I needed something to eat. But there I was on the spiritual, emotional, physical, <laughs> basically any ledge you could be at. That's the ledge I was on. And I had a Christian sister who said, hey, do you need some help? Not because she was trying to do anything great, but simply because she was being herself. And I know any of you sisters in the room would have done that. I absolutely know that you would have. And that's the power of the way God has made you. Because here's the thing. I did, I did some math on this because I can't help it. <laughs> I've been in probably close to 5,000 sermons in my life. You know how many of those I've forgotten? <laughs> Almost every single one. But I'm never going to forget that moment when my sister Megan said, do you need something to eat? And so what I want to encourage you to, sisters, this is not to say that you, as a mother, you know, just, you know, shut up and do the dishes or just make something neat. That's not this. This is to say God has given you a place, and he's given you abilities, and he's given you insights, and don't trade that birthright for a bowl of beans. Don't throw that away because it's special, and it's impactful, and it's meaningful for the glory of Christ. And so the next set of sisters that we want to look at were those who were involved in the work of the Lord, but they took what we might call a very background scenario. Luke chapter, three, verses one th Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching the, and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. These women here that it lists off, it rattles off several of them. It says they took care of the work of the Lord. They were contributing financially to Jesus. Similarly, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 11. Thanks, bro. First Timothy 3, verse number 11. Likewise, their wives. This is speaking of the deacons' wives. It, la it lists off several of the qualities that deacons likewise have says these deacons' wives are supposed to be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all these things. You know, the work of a deacon is often a background work. It's a work doing things that are messy and difficult and serving people in ways that a lot of people don't see. What we read about the earliest wives of deacons 
is that they took care of serving in medical roles that were inappropriate for a man to be a part of. Those things of going and checking on an older sister who might need help getting changed, closed and cleaned up and bathed. That sort of background thing that nobody ever notices. That's the faithful service of a sister. Acts chapter 9, verse 36 and 37. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. This lady, Tabitha, she was full of good works and charitable deeds. We don't know what many of them are. As we read the next passage, there were those that showed clothes that it seems she had made for work, that she had made for them as a gift. You know, clothes making is a very difficult task, and it's a tremendous work. And this sister in the Lord didn't stand, as, as far as we know, on a corner and declare Jesus, but she showed by her actions the tremendous value of who she was. Similarly, Romans 16, verses 6 to 7. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia. We won't read all of these. Tryphena and Tryphosa, Persis, Julia, and then Neris and his sister as well. These are all feminine names. These are people that Paul identified as valuable in the work of the Lord. That when, you, when Paul wrote to Rome and said, hey, say hi to the people who are part of the work, the people who are critical to moving this church forward, talk to these ladies about it. Because these ladies are instrumental in seeing that the gospel is advanced. And sisters, I want to encourage you to do the same. And for us brothers, I want to strive to honor them as such. There's one other group I want to look at here before we talk about what this means for us today. And that's sisters that we might call in the foreground. You know, this last group, we don't really know what they did. Maybe made some clothes, tended to some physical needs, but they had a work that most people might have never noticed. But we also see sisters who were in the foreground, we might say. They weren't contradicting those other prohibitions that we've read earlier, but they still had a work that was important. Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who's a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So Paul commends to them Phoebe, a sister in the Lord who's helped many people. And as, as Phoebe comes, uh, presumably with this letter to the Romans here, Paul says, if she needs help in something, you help her out. Let's catch that. This sister in the Lord was given some level of charge outside of the assembly to take care of a task and to involve brothers in that. Brothers, if a sister asks for your help in something, in a task, don't bristle. Let me give you an example. At, at Wheeler Avenue, we have a, a greeters that we assign. So we make sure a couple people are there early, they're at the door, and they stand at the door, make sure everybody gets greeted, make sure visitors get a visitor card and things like that. And we've got a sister that organizes that. And so if she texts me and says, hey, can you do this? You know what I need to do? I need to try to do my best to honor her in that. Because our elders, the church leadership, has appointed her over this task. And so my job is to try and to help her as much as possible, those whom the leadership commends. Romans 16, verses 3 through 5. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life to whom not only I've given thanks, but also the church of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Apeandus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. So Priscilla and Aquila says, these people risked their lives for me, specifically Priscilla being a sister. They're fellow workers. They're people that we do this together. 
They're not behind me. We are on the front lines together. And I want to notice something about this. It says, greet the church that is in their house. So these, 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 this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, we read that they had been kicked out of Rome previously. And they're in the area of Ephesus, around that area. And they start a church in their house in Ephesus. And they get to go back to Rome. And guess what they do when they get back to Rome? Like, we need to start a church now. Think about that kind of posture and love of the Lord. That when you're migrating, moving around, it may seem transitory, but you're like, we got to start a church. That's a high priority. Like, my highest priority is getting the moving boxes out of the way. I don't know about you guys. I want to get things organized. They said, we need to make sure this church is started. Similarly, it says they began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. There was a man named Apollos. So I understand the only place that the, the scriptures call an eloquent man speaking boldly, impressively, persuasively. And the trouble is, he wasn't speaking correctly, <laughs> as nice as those other things were. And this husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla, they said, hey, you've got this wrong. This sister was a part of correcting him. Our sisters are welcome to offer critique and to teach and encourage. And brothers... If a sister comes up to you and says, I think you might want to rethink this, treasure that counsel that comes from a different perspective. Treasure that. Don't just rebuff and say, well, you're a lady, so I don't have to listen to you. I mean, if that's your attitude when you're teaching, stop teaching. Okay, that's unacceptable. Be open to be shown another way. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 says, I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche, be of the same mind of the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. It says, these sisters, Eudia and Syntyche, they've kind of gotten their wires crossed, but they were laboring together, a very special title for Paul. Similarly, Acts 21, verses 8 and 9, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. They were teaching the word of God. Outside of an assembly context, obviously, but they had this inspired pronouncement of the word of God. It was good that God had given them his word to speak. Now a lot of times we think about prophecy as future telling. Really in this case it was just to say, thus saith the Lord. What does God have to say? And God inspired that. Similarly, Acts 16, verse number 40 so they went out of prison and entered the house, and when they'd seen the brethren, they encouraged them to depart. So this, this house, presumably the house church, where Lydia was. So all these things together, let's put Lydia and Phoebe and Priscilla and Eudia and Syntyche uh, and the four daughters of, of Philip. You've got sisters that were taking a role of teaching that wasn't just totally unnoticed. And so if God allows you sisters to have a visible role outside of an assembly context, that's not inappropriate. You sisters can serve in that today. And I will say this. It is never wise to seek to be seen. It is never wise to seek to be seen or to seek to be noticed, to seek to be thought well of. Seeking those things is vainglory and it's not appropriate. But if the opportunity arises and there's outside of an assembly context where you can share those sorts of things, God be with you in that. And have confidence in that. And joyfully think about that. So we've seen the prohibitions on our sisters in the assembly, in leadership, in the home. 
And we've seen that God affirms the equality of our sisters both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as human beings and as co-heirs with Christ. We've seen women leading and teaching men outside of public assembly context, and we see our sisters moving and working with diligence and with intensity. And so I worry, here's the thing, part of the reason we spent so long on this, and I appreciate your patience, is I worry that sometimes we read those assembly passages, which is like eight verses, and we think that's just the big thing, and we, you know, and we just kind of ignore all the other things that can go on. God restricts, sisters, your role in a very small way. To show you how small it is, If you took this board here and you said this was an entire week, then the amount of time that God restricts your role is about like that. And so I want to encourage you, don't look at that and say, I'm not allowed to do anything. Look at all that God has given you the chance to do, all the places where God is allowing you and blessing you and expecting you to be a part of the work of the kingdom. There's all sorts of things that any of us can do. There's tons and tons of things. I made this list in about 30 minutes, and my wife said, it's a good start. There's more to do, though, because the work of the kingdom is more than an hour and a half on Sunday or an hour on Wednesday. It's more than what we do at this building. The work of the kingdom is seeing people know the gospel of Jesus Christ every moment of their lives. The work of the kingdom is an every moment thing. And sisters, I want to encourage you to be a part of this, and I want to encourage you to continue that if you are. I'm going to praise you if you are. Because the church needs everyone. And so if you want to be a part, let's talk. We'll find a spot for you. I know the, the brothers and sisters here will be glad to plug you in. Because every person needs to be a contributor. It is the will of God that you would contribute. It is not healthy for us as Christians to just be people who sit back and consume spiritually and are always takers. God wants you to be a giver. And here's some ways you might be able to give, but there's a lot more. And the church needs you. And so we need to confidently and we need to joyfully and we need to clearly say where God has restricted but let's not allow a restriction in one area to cause us to ignore the great work before us. And let us rejoice in the value of our sisters that God has placed on them, the value to the work of the gospel, and let us honor them. And rather than for us men being a stumbling block and a hindrance to their participation, let us be a great asset to them being a part of the work of the kingdom. And sisters, we want the same for you. It's a study for this morning. Thankful for your time. Thankful for the chance to speak with you. As we think about an invitation, there's not exactly a great gospel call that comes out of these passages. But I want to invite you to the work of the kingdom. And if you're someone who's not involved, if you're someone who you come here and all you do is consume, 
if you're someone who's not contributing and you want to be a contributor, the church here wants to help you. We want to help you with that. And so if you want to make a change, if you want to plant a flag and say, I'm going to be a contributor to the work of the Lord, please come, have a seat on the front, as together we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.